Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host Dave Homewood and uh, this is episode three with Noel Cruz. Hi Noel. Hello Dave. Episode three already. Yeah. Goodness me. <laughs> um, so we're talking today uh, about your sabre uh, time flying sabres in the RWF and uh, you sort of just got on to 81 wing wasn't it? That yes. Left you. Yes. I just, just graduated from number 46 pilots course. And we got to 81 wing and did the vampire um, weapons training. That's right. So you've now got me to the age of 19 and a half. Yeah. So there's only another 50 years to go. How many of these <laughs> sessions have we got left? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, um, about from, I say 19 and a half is when we got to this point where we, we finished all the weapon stuff and then was the time for the biggie. And that was the conversion to the hot ship of the day, which was the the Avon Sabre. And this was quite a, uh, a daunting thing for most of us, not realizing how easy this airplane really was to fly because I mean it was just twice as big as the Vampire. In yeah. the Vampire you could stand on the tarmac and peer into the cockpit. On the Sabre it was like you, know, you had to get a stepladder to get up to the cockpit. And in fact getting into the cockpit alone was, was a, a neat trick. You had to be fairly fit to do that. Okay. Um, it was such a big airplane. So you, I remember when I first got there, walking around one of the hangar and just looking up at it and going, oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Are they actually going to let me fly this? Yeah. But they did. Of course, the, the, the first part of the course was, was, was just extensive ground school for about two weeks, I think. We were into the classroom just learning all about the systems and so forth because it was quite different to anything I'd flown before. It was a fully hydraulic system aeroplane. There was no manual flight controls at all. It was all purely hydraulic. There were twin hydraulic systems, etc., etc., yeah. of about 3,000 pounds per square footage, which had to be because the, when you're zooming along pretty damn fast, because the controls are big. The ailerons, for instance, were proportionally quite a bit bigger than people realised. So it was they were up there with these modern aerobatic airplanes in terms of the size of the ailerons, because okay. this thing had a phenomenal roll rate. Yeah. Uh, but to bang the stick over any sort of speed, you needed uh, the strength of 10 men, hence yes. the hydraulics. Yes. Um, and one thing that sticks in my mind to this day was we went into the fuel control system, which was a lot more complicated than the Vampire. In fact, the Vampire was a fairly simple control system, it's like a big tap. As you open the tap, you shovel more fuel in, and either you've got more, more thrust or a lot more flames out the back, okay. depending how smoothly. But the Sabre was all fully automatic. And I remember to this day that it had, I think, at least 10,000 half ball valves in the system. <laughs> 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 but we learned all about that. And then, of course, we got into the actual flight part. Now, the, the, the course consisted of only 10 flights to convert to the airplane. Yeah. So that's all it was, because as far as I'm concerned, the flying of the airplane was just a small part, it was learning how to use it operationally. Right. Indeed, uh, um, anyone, as it turns out, once I realized that anyone on our pilot's course could have flown the airplane, but that wasn't the point. We were there because they figured we'd be better suited to the role of a fighter pilot, because right. we were all a bit gung-ho. Yeah. 
so the next step was we got into a simulator. Now it wasn't a simulator in the modern sense with uh, all electronic gizmos and all motion and so forth. It was a cockpit of a, of a crashed Sabre. I'm not quite sure. I think it was a Canadian one that it somehow got. And it was in a, in a room and it was bolted to the floor. But you could get in this thing and flick switches and things would light up and dials would move. So you could learn the procedures and learn all the various checklists and so forth. Yeah. You could actually fly it. It was linked to a computer. Now, you have to remember, this is 1963. Yeah. So the computer uh, probably doesn't have as much computational power as the mobile phone that we're now talking into here. <laughs> yeah. But it was in a room about as big as this house. And it was banks and banks of uh, valves and the old... <laughs> old uh, telephone clickety-clack relays and so <laughs> forth and it was air-conditioned because it generated a thousand megawatts of heat Ooh. and the two guys uh, uh, had to service this thing fully especially if you crash the simulator <laughs> that would lock up a number of things okay. so it was quite a big deal but you could get this thing and out the back of it was a console where an instructor would sit and he could flick switches and simulate emergencies etc etc yeah. and we did 10 hours in that practicing all manner of things undercarriage phase and hydraulic phase and they'd throw at you what 10 emergencies at the same time, quite unrealistic, but you know, just to make sure that you actually knew the system, yeah. because there's no way they can actually teach you to fly the airplane. You had to just know the procedures. So we did that, and then came, of course, the, the next step was to actually get in the airplane, yeah. the real airplane, and start it up, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, taxi it around the airfield. And this was the first unique thing, because the Sabre, being a single-seat airplane only, did not have any intercom system of any sort because there's no one to talk to. Right. Okay? Yep. So unless you press the transmit button, you couldn't hear yourself, which means you could yell and scream at yourself and you couldn't hear yourself in the headphones. Wow. Most people flying general aviation airplanes uh, are used to getting feedback into their headphones even with an internal intercom. So yep. you couldn't even talk to yourself. Now, of course, for the first taxi around the airfield, they decided that they would put one of the instructors with us. So where does he stand? <laughs> he would stand with one foot on the wing, one into the kickstep at the side of the cockpit, hanging on to the edge of the cockpit right, outside the airplane as you taxied around. And of course, the only way he could talk to you, they rigged up a special uh, microphone lead which plugged into the standard jack and then both headsets plugged into that. Yep. So to talk to you, he would lean inside the cockpit and press the transmit button. And then you could hear him talk through the side tone of the transmission. Obviously. Uh, we went to a fairly private frequency because some of the time some of the things they had to say were not transmittable. <laughs> yes, yes. And so we would start this monster up and then trundle off around the airfield with this <laughs> poor hapless guy hanging on the side of the airplane, reaching in from time to time, saying things like, slow down! <laughs> 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 and of course, it doesn't sound like a big deal to taxi, but again, even the, ste the nose wheel steering was hydraulic. But you had a little button on the on the, the bottom of the stick which you held in whilst taxiing and that automatically engaged the rudder pedals with the nose wheel steering. If you didn't press that in, then the nose wheel became freely castering. Okay. Which you could you use differential brakes to steer with, but um, the hydraulic was far better because this is a big heavy airplane. We're talking about a sixteen thousand pound airplane. Right. So of course we would hop in, taxi around the airfield for a bit and go down to the end and just go through the pre-takeoff checks and taxi back and by the time we did that this poor guy's legs because he's standing there doing the splits on this thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then that was it. That proved that we could start it and stop it and taxi it etc etc. And then the next big quantum leap of course was the first flight. And yeah. this was probably the most memorable flight I've ever had. More so than my first solo in any airplane. Okay. Simply because you know, in a first solo, you've at least been in the airplane 
duel with an instructor before he gets out. Well, in yes. this case, there was no instructor. What they did provide us with, though, on the first two flights was a chase pilot. Right. So when we launched, there was an aircraft in formation, not close formation, just in case we did something ridiculous. He would hang back 100 meters or so. Yeah. And his advantage, as he said to us, was, well, if we did something really stupid, he could just ease out of the way and he'd be the, the first witness of the crash. <laughs> <laughs> so the chase pilot was there just to make sure we didn't get lost or did something really silly. Or if there was a problem, he could offer sage advice, like calm down, lad, and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And away we went. Now, of course, that was just uh, the most amazing thing. I can remember taxiing out and lining up on this airplane on the end of the runway and sitting there and sitting there, <laughs> <laughs> spooling up the engine, checking all the jet pipe temperatures, everything were fine, and sitting there and a little voice from the chase pilot said something like, you can go now. <laughs> <laughs> so he dropped the brakes and Jesus, this thing just would accelerate twice as fast as a vampire, rocket off down the runway. Yeah. At about 105 knots, you lifted the nose wheel. At 115, 120, the airplane just flew off the ground because once you lifted it to take off altitude, it just flew. Right. And then accelerated very quickly. The undercarriage and flap limiting speed was 185 knots, so you literally had to, as soon as you felt the wheels come off the ground, select the gear up. Okay. Because they took a few seconds to cycle, and you only just barely get them locked up before you pass the limiting speed. So it all happened very quickly. And then, of course, you held that attitude and accelerated out to its best climb speed of 400 knots. <laughs> now, when, of course, they told us about this in the ground school, and they talked about the procedure, 400 knots was faster than you could die of a vampire. Wow. Right? And this was the climb speed of the airplane. Holy hell. I think the vampire limiting speed when I was flying, it was 420 knots, but a little later on, they knocked that back to 350 because the balsa wood was starting to get a bit weak. <laughs> so it would climb at 400 knots into a Mach number of Mach 0.82. So by the time you passed 18,000 feet, you're, you're climbing on Mach numbers and so forth. Yeah. And away we went. Normally, uh, I don't remember exactly what altitude I got before I tried the first turn. I was probably passing 20,000 feet or something <laughs> like that, climbing straight out over the ocean. And the again, the chase pilot would say something subtle like, uh, <coughs> you can try a turn down hole. <laughs> little, little, little digs like that. Yeah. And of course, so we climbed straight to about 35,000 feet and leveled off. And I lowered the nose to what seemed like a reasonable attitude. And it's still going up like a homesick angel. So I lowered the nose more. By the time I finally found the level attitude, I'm looking down over the nose about a 30 degree angle. The forward visibility was just amazing. Okay. Yeah, which was what the aeroplane's designed for, really. But having been used to being stuck in this vampire where you're buried in this, this bucket of bolts, this, the, the visibility was just amazing. And of course, you're sitting in this huge bubble canopy, which is ahead of the wing. The wing is swept back at 35 degrees, so you've actually got to turn your head quite hard yeah. to actually even see your wing. So straight away, you get this impression that you're just sitting in this bubble in space with no aeroplane around you. It's oh, all right. back there and behind you. Okay. And of course the engine was, even though it was far more powerful, it was a lot smoother and it was further back behind you. The, the Vampire, again, the engine was right behind you. The, the Sabre was a good 20 feet behind you, it was way down the back. And it was very quiet. It sounded like a vacuum cleaner running in the next room. Oh, right. And about as smooth. And, that, and of course there was no feedback through any intercom, so there was no random noise getting into a microphone. Yeah. And so I suddenly was stunned with the fact that it was absolutely quiet and smooth and the ground down below was hurtling past. And uh, the chase pilot didn't say much for a while. I think they'd already appreciate it. You just sit there and just be in awe of this 
beast that you're now supposedly in control of. Yeah. Anyway, then he would start offering little things like we, you know, try a few turns a bit tighter and that sort of stuff. So he'd coach you through just the, the basic maneuvers, all of which you should be able to do, but just this, this aeroplane was so awesome. And of course it did them without any problem at all. Yeah. It was just so easy to fly. So we did about 20, 30 minutes only, and then come back for the landing. Now the other interesting thing with the Sabre, you couldn't do touch and go landings in it. <clears throat> the automatic fuel control system was not, uh, well, I'll start again. It had a, a, a very powerful engine for its day, but it was a, an early technology single stage um, axial flow jet, which had a fairly slow acceleration time compared with modern jets. It would take anything between five and seven seconds to spool up to full power. Right. Now, if you touch down an 8,000 foot runway um, at, a, say, 130 knots, by the time you spooled, and you've got to close the throttle to make it land, by the time you spooled the engine up again to take off power, you're already off the other end of the runway. Right. right? So the idea of doing touch and goes was just absolutely out, because right. if the engine hung up, as I said, this acceleration control unit from time to time would just decide, no, I don't want to do that for another few seconds, yeah. it could be quite disastrous. Yeah. So you only ever did full stop landing. So to come back and shoot circuits, what we did was just fly them down to a, a missed approach altitude of a couple of hundred feet and then hit the power and go around again. This way you could fly with the speed brakes and the power against each other and have the quicker response. Yeah. So we got back into the circuit area and uh, the chase pilot would just follow you around two circuits to make sure that you know basically you had it in the groove and then he would stand back a bit and say, well, okay, land it. <laughs> <laughs> and again, as it turned out, after all the tension and all, oh my God, it just worked. You, you, you sat it on the numbers and the airplane came down finals and you flared and closed the throttle and she plopped onto the runway. There was no excessive float or anything like that. Okay. Not like a light airplane, she just sat down. Yeah. But you did then consume the full 8,000 feet of runway to stop it. Right because they didn't teach us that early days uh, a technique called aerodynamic braking, which came a bit later, which was a bit tricky, but very handy in a, in a wet runway. Because the other thing that the, uh, I must admit, the one thing that the Vampire had that the Sabre should have had, the Vampire had what they called a Maxaret anti-skid devices on the, on the brakes. So you could stand on the brakes and this anti-skid device would not let them lock up. You could have buy the motor cars. You know, 50 yep. years later, they finally got a motor car. Yep. The Sabre didn't have that, it had very powerful brakes. But if you hit them too hard, you could easily blow a tire on a wet runway. The aeroplane would actually aquaplane down to a speed of 90 knots. Right. So you're halfway down the runway before you could even touch the brakes because you got to 90 knots about halfway. Then you can start to gently use them. And there are innumerable incidences of people blowing tires, including myself. Yep. Or sliding off the end of the runway at 20 knots into the crash barrier just because they couldn't get the thing slowed down enough. Yep. So it was a bit tricky on the landing. Uh, and needed you know, a good length of runway to do it. But for all the all the, the landings that were done by a bunch of, of, of shall we say, uh, uh, young, over-exuberant kids like ourselves, there weren't too many incidences like that. So there were two sorties like that. Basically, the second sortie we went out, we did some stalls and that sort of stuff. In it. But again, it was a big pussycat. Uh, the airplane itself was, was elegantly simple to fly. And a lot of people don't realise when they talk about high-powered fighters and so forth, and they think, oh, they must be really tricky to fly. The answer is quite the opposite. Okay. Because if you have a, an airplane which is intended to be a flying weapon, the, the pilot's job is to go and use it to kill somebody, basically, yeah. or shoot something down. 
the last thing you want is to distract him by having a difficult airplane to fly. True, yeah. All right? So the airplanes themselves are quite easy to fly. It's what you do with them is, is where the challenge is. A lot of people don't get that. Um, most of the World War II fighters, which became very, very popular, were the ones which were the easiest to fly. And the yeah. classic, of course, is the P-51 Mustang. Yeah. There's yeah. so many of those flying in the United States. A guy can sort of learn to fly in a Cessna 172 and then hop into P-51 and with a simple bit of instruction can fly. Yeah. Yeah. During World War II, they didn't have any chance to be converted at all. Some squadrons in, the, in, in, in Europe at the time were re-equipped with P-51s on day one, and the, and the briefing overnight was, well, this is how they work. You can check yourself out on the way to the target tomorrow. They'd hop in and just fly them yeah. because they were so easy to fly, so you can get on with the job. Well, the Sabre was like that. The Sabre, of course, was made by the same company as the P-51. It was, if you like, the jet-powered P-51. It had all the same approach to making this an easy airplane to fly and it was and it was great so we we did two sorties just of that standard handling technique stuff and then we were given another eight sorties up to the total of ten to go out and practice certain things uh, with the airplane low flying that was a hoot yeah you know, wind this thing up to 500 knots down the beach at the low flying area and so forth okay. i remember doing that settling as low as i did and i've encountered a 15 foot surf fisherman uh, now, I'm sure he wasn't that high. I was just a bit lower than I thought I was. And I went across the top of him at 500 knots. I don't think that impressed him too much at all. In fact, in recent years, they moved the, the boundary of the low-flying area off the beach because I think there were too many fishermen complaining. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we did all those standard things and sort of building up our, our confidence in the airplane. And, of course, till ride number 10 was the big one. This was when we broke the sound barrier. Yeah, yeah right. Which, of course, is... What, as, as any of the listeners will know, that's not what you actually do. You don't break anything. You take the airplane supersonic. Yeah. Now, a bit of a flashback here, because I didn't mention during the vampire training, we also used to do what they called Mac runs in, in the vampire. Okay. The vampire was by no means supersonic in any way at all, but it suffered all of the early problems of compressibility. And of course, they would show us what this was. And this was almost like it was straight out of one of those old black and white B-grade movies of the 50s where yeah. you dive and the thing shook and shuddered. We put the vampire into a dive and at about Mach 0.72, something like that, it would start to really shudder and bounce around. And the nose would start to pitch up, so you had to push quite firmly forward on the stick to stop it from doing that. Yeah. And by about Mach 0.75, it would pitch up uncontrollably. Okay. Despite the fact that you had full forward stick, the vampire would pitch out, but it was shuddering and banging and carrying on, and it was quite a ride. And the first time you did that, you're thinking, my God, the airplane's going to come unglued. You know, yeah. It's shaking so badly. And we did that quite a lot in the vampire, up to the point where one of the things we used to do on instruments was to do a limited panel, that's no attitude indicator, just the old bat and ball, a limited panel macron in the vampire under the hood. Yeah. Uh, that was sort of a worst case scenario. If you really screwed up on instruments and wound up going downhill in a hurry, this is what was going to happen. Right. Uh, so it was quite controllable once you knew what was going on, but it was just a wild ride. So of course you now approach the Sabre, even though they say, no, no, the Sabre's a whole lot better than that. No problems at all. You still had this training behind you thinking, wow, you know, you're getting all tensed up and built up about the thing. Yeah. But the fact was that it was quite the reverse. Uh, I can recall climbing this airplane up to 40,000 feet. And I've been told by some of the, oh, one of the little things that was um, about the Sabre, and a lot of airplanes, I suppose, um, and that is that no two wings are built exactly the same. Okay. Yeah, there's always a minuscule difference in, yeah. in the build. Any light airplane will do that. And uh, 
And what they said is what happens is as the shockwaves start to build up over the wings, they won't be in exactly the same location on the wing. So there'll be a very gentle tendency to roll one way or the other. Right. Only very subtle. Yeah. And just the slightest bit of, of aileron will correct it. Fine. In the bar, some of the old salts said, yeah, but the trick is let it roll. Right? This way you don't have to use the aileron so you don't have any trim drag and it will go faster. So I said, well, what do you mean, let it roll on its back? No, start on your back. Get to 40,000 feet, roll upside down, let the nose fall, and take your hand off the stick, and it will naturally roll out. So, of course, wanting to go as fast as I possibly could, I thought, yeah, let's try that. <laughs> so, of course, we uh, got to 40,000 feet, and just flicked the stick, and she rolled upside down. I literally took my hand off, because by now I'm feeling pretty comfortable with this airplane. Yeah. I took my hand off and the nose fell through, of course, to about 30 degrees nose down. And I'm sitting there looking at the ground or the water, about over the ocean, looking at the water upside down and then she smoothly rolled back to wings level. I thought, wow, that was pretty good. I wonder how fast I'm, I'm going now, looking inside at the Mach meter to think I'm still accelerating. And there I was sitting at Mach 1.1. Right. And after that little gentle wing roll, nothing about the airplane felt any different to a cruising flight. It was just as smooth, just as quiet. Except we're going downhill, you know, the altimeter's unwinding pretty rapidly. Yeah. And that was it. And I sat there for a minute and looked at this and thought, hmm, so that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I opened the speed brakes and pulled out at about 25,000 feet. And I actually remember looking back up through the canopy as I thought to myself, well, that was a gross waste of height. <laughs> because it was just nothing dramatic about it at all. Right. Absolutely nothing. And so, and most of us felt the same. So you didn't actually do it very much because there was just no challenge. Yeah. This airplane was just so well designed. Okay. Now I have to remember North American who built this airplane got it right, right from the beginning. Even though the Australian Sabre was different internally, like they had to move the engine back and change a lot of the structural stuff inside. Yeah. Apart from about a six inch larger hole at the front to suck more air through for the bigger engine. There was nothing aerodynamically different about our airplane to the original F-86s. Okay. Okay. So, uh, suggesting, well, there's nothing changed. When did they first discover that this airplane was capable of going supersonic? Well, on the very first test flight of the XP-86 that was caught, on the 1st of October 1947, the test pilot, George Welch, on his first flight, took it up and pointed it downhill and took it supersonic. Right. Okay. Right. Now that date's important because that predates the X-1 and Chuck Yeager by two weeks. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. Now there's been a lot of controversy about whether or not that actually happened. But all I've got to say is that I was 19 and they let me do it with only scarcely a briefing. In fact, the best briefing I got was in the bar. If they were that casual about it, they knew that this airplane would do it yes. so easily. Yeah. And someone who's experienced with George Welch, he knew on the first flight what it was capable of. Yes, absolutely. All right. So it actually was the first aircraft in the world to exceed the speed of sound. And not only that, it took off and landed under its own power with its own wheels. It didn't have to be hauled up there with some mothership and all the rest of it. Yeah. So a lot of the dramatic movies that have come about lately, uh, or later, I should say, um, not exactly true. There's a lot of politics behind it, and that's a whole other story yeah. as to why it was suppressed and all that sort of stuff. We won't go into that. I didn't knew none of this at the time, but I've, I've read about it since. And I just thought, well, yeah, I believe that because I did it and it was just so easy. Um, the other interesting thing about the airplane, while we're still talking about the conversion phase, in fact, this happened on my first flight 
as well as just general handling, of course, included aerobatics. Well, of course, the roll rate of this airplane was so quick that by the time, if you got the stick in your hand and pushed it to the side of the cockpit, by the time you physically got from central to the side of the cockpit, you'd already gone around twice. Wow. The roll rate was so fast that by the time you actually went <coughs> and pushed the stick there, you'd already rotated twice. Wow. You could get something, one of the things was to get up to about 400 knots, pull the nose up at 20 degrees, shove the stick over and try and count how many times it rolled before you'd throw up. <laughs> I feel like throwing. Yeah. I got to 20 and had to stop because the whole world was just whoa, Ooh. like that. But then the other thing was in pitch. To loop the aeroplane, you needed, we used about a 400 knot entry speed and you pull back on the stick and it would carve off about seven or 8,000 feet of altitude going around the loop. Yep. And of course, in the chipmunk and the windjill and the vampire, which all had manual controls, uh, we were taught to hold or release the stick pressure over the top. Right? You pull back hard and then as you get slower over the top, you release the stick pressure and then you increase the stick pressure. So instinctively, of course, I pulled into a loop in the saber, and as I'm getting somewhere, I think, towards the top, I start releasing the pressure. Yeah. Now, the saber had hydraulic controls. There was no air loads being fed back to your hand at all. Yeah. And in fact, if it wasn't for a couple of big springs under the floor, which were the artificial feel, you would have no feel on the stick at all. Okay. It was just like, the stick was just like a big hydraulic valve. That's yeah. all it was. Yeah. Right? Easy turning on your tap. But that, of course, would mean you had to control the thing. So I stuck a couple of big springs under the floor. So it's a fairly primitive artificial feel system, which means if you pulled the stick back two inches in flight, you'd feel a certain load. If you pulled it two inches on the ground, you'd feel exactly the same load. Right. Which meant, of course, when you pulled the stick back to do a loop, there was no changing air load, so you didn't have to relax the back pressure, which, of course, I did, and I think everyone else did. So by the time you got about 45 degrees on your back, having relaxed the back pressure, that meant moving the stick forward, so the airplane stopped looping and carved its way to the stratosphere upside down on a 45 degree climb and then eventually ran out of speed and just fell out. Yep. At this stage you think, oh my God, I'm out of control. And all you could hear softly in the background of the radio was chuckling <laughs> <laughs> from the chase pile who knew this was coming and was waiting for it to happen. Yep. And they would offer the, the words of wisdom that was just hold the pressure, don't relax the pressure. And of course, you think, why didn't they tell me this on the ground? <laughs> I think we were set up a couple of times you know, to, to have these experiences. Yeah. So then, of course, you held the pressure and around she went. And later on, I've used this very technique in my aerobatic training with people because it has all sorts of aerodynamic implications, which I was still learning about at the time. So that was pretty cool. We, uh, the only incident that I can recall, and I was like, incident, I mean, it wasn't dangerous at all, but funny, during this early uh, phase, there were six of us on the conversion course, four guys from my course, at, uh, my pilot's course that I mentioned before. Yeah. There was one guy who was on a previous pilot's course and for some reason uh, was back on our Sabre conversion course. Yeah. I can't remember why. <clears throat> and a much older guy, uh, uh, an Air Commodore Tonkin, Wing Commander Tonkin at the time he was, yeah. he was going on to command one of the, uh, the operations uh, in Butterworth and he was an ex-meteor pilot so he was being rechecked on Sabres. Okay. So the six of us. And on one of those early flights, I was coming back into, into the field to land and, uh, and to get the airplane into the circuit and slowed down, you join through what's called an initial leg, which is like joining straight up wind. Yeah. Okay. So you could come barreling on the upwind leg at about 300 odd knots. And about middle of the airfield, you'd roll on about 60 degrees of bank, pull 2G U-turn onto the downwind leg, 
close the throttle, throw out the speed brakes, and she would decelerate quite rapidly around the corner so that as you rolled out on the downwind leg, uh, you drop the undercarriage and, and then the flaps as you got, and there you went. So it all happened fairly quickly. It was a very expeditious way of entering. Yep. Well, I called that I was entering through this initial leg to the tower, and they said, yes, there's another aircraft just ahead of you. And I looked for him, and I couldn't see him anywhere. I thought, that's odd. As I got to the middle of the runway, I racked on 60 degrees of bank, pulled back, popped the speed brakes, looked through the top of the canopy to see another Sabre coming in the opposite direction, doing exactly the same thing. Yeah. We were canopy to canopy, about on other opposite side of the runway, several metres apart. Yeah. But he was going in the opposite direction. So he was doing a U-turn to my side, and I'm doing a U-turn to his side. I immediately thought, oh no, not again. Yeah. <laughs> I joined the wrong way. Yeah, yeah. And of course, as I learned shortly thereafter, he thought exactly the same thing. <laughs> so I, I didn't know who it was at the time. It was Wing Commander Tonkin. And uh, so I pulled this U-turn, so I'm now on the downwind leg looking at him, and I, so I thought, I'll just continue around. So I did a complete 360-degree turn to go back the way he was going. Yeah. And he did the same thing, and did a complete 360-degree turn towards me. So we're doing this pirouette around each other <laughs> over the middle of the field. At this point, I looked down, and there was the windsock. Butterfly net, out of the net. And I was going the right way. He was going the wrong way this time. <laughs> So I just hit the button and said, I'm right, you're wrong. He said, good. Because <laughs> he was completely confused. So I went around another time, joined downwind, and he did the same. So we went around each other twice over the middle of the field. Yeah. There wasn't a word from the tower, because I could imagine they were looking at us saying, what the hell are these two guys doing? <laughs> so I landed, he landed behind me, and we had a, a small debriefing about flying out of the butterfly net. And he said, oh, that's a good, that's a good little thing to remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So that completed our first 10 flights. So now we're formally checked on the aeroplane. Yep. So then we got into the business of formation flying, only a couple of sorties of that, and that's one that nearly wrote me off. Um, we have to take it to 45,000 feet and fly formation. Of course, at that sort of altitude, the air's pretty damn thin. The indicated airspeed of the aeroplane is getting quite slow, but the true airspeed is quite high, so the momentum. So flying close formation of that is very tricky. You've got to be very careful and subtle. So we had one session of that. And this was just two students. Yeah, we went up together, and, and a lot of this we briefed on the ground and just turned loose to do our own thing. Okay. You know? yeah. um, and so we take, took it in turns. I, I led up first, and the guy on my wing did his thing, and then after about 20 minutes, we swapped over and uh, did the same thing again. And the grand finale was we just do a bit of a tail chase on the way home. Yep. <coughs> so I'm now the, on the wing and he's the leader. <coughs> so he starts barreling around maneuvering and I'm sitting several hundred yards back. And of course, my aim is not to lose him. His aim is to shake me off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the latent fighter parts coming out already. And he did the bugger because he pulled straight up into the sun, blinded me and then speared off in one direction and I got out of sync with him but I was not going to admit that I had lost contact with him. I hadn't actually lost contact, but I was out of position. I wasn't yeah. following him. And as hard as I tried to maneuver to get back in, he was maneuvering, still thinking I was back there, maneuvering hard. And this went on for, I don't know, five minutes. And I'm not saying a word and he's maneuvering. He didn't know I'd lost position, so he's maneuvering hard all over the place. Suddenly he straightens and, uh, and is flying straight and level. So I thought, ah, here's my chance. And he's actually below me going the opposite direction. I glanced at my altimeter, we're at 20,000 feet, so I rolled on my back and pulled through, yeah. uh, through the second half of the loop to come down behind him. Now I sank a little bit below him, maybe 1,000 feet or so below him, yeah. as, I, as I'm looking up at him, and he still hasn't turned, I thought, so why is he holding it straight and level? 
and suddenly I'm conscious of stuff rushing past my aeroplane, white caps. Oh. I'm actually 100 feet over the water. I wasn't at 20,000 feet when I pulled through, I was only at 10,000 feet. Ooh. Oh, yes. And I had casually, and I, went, I didn't pull real hard, I was just trying to judge it to come down behind him. He was running in on initial to arrive in the circuit area, doing a long straight, and just as he, just as I'm going, I won't repeat what I said. <laughs> He's calling me into close formation for the final run in for the landing. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if I had just pulled a little less aggressive, just slightly, I would have hit the water and he wouldn't have even known I'd gone because mm -hmm. I never told him I was in formation and I would have just vanished off the face of the earth and no one would have found me because we're still about five miles out to sea. Wow. And that would have been the end of, of, of the whole thing, including this conversation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, just a quick misreading of the altimeter in the rush. Uh, yeah, I must have been about 100 feet. I mean, the white caps, because I'm doing about 400 knots at this stage, and these white caps are really hurtling past. Yeah. I had been that low before, doing our low flying, so I knew what it looked like, only that was intentional. This was completely unintentional. Yeah. Scared the bejesus out of me. Got back in formation land. I did not say a word for weeks afterwards before I, I actually said, you know, when we did that, 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 that formation thing, this is what happened. He went, oh, you silly bugger. And I was. I was a silly bugger for not calling it. Yeah. I should have called, you know, loss of contact or out of position straight away. He would have eased off to let me get back in. Yeah. yeah. And I say that because a thousand years later, <clears throat> I had someone not call lost contact uh, when he lost contact with me in a formation and nearly killed the pair of us. Okay. And that's a, something for future reference. Yeah. We had a mid-air collision as a result of it. Oh, yeah. Way down the list of, 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 of talks. So where are we? Right. So we've done all of this formation stuff, now we're into the weapons work, and this is the serious stuff, right? Yep. And there was two distinct phases of the, of the weapons work. There was the air-to-ground phase and then the air-to-air -air phase. And the air-to-ground phase consisted of learning how to drop bombs, dive bomb, yep. how to shoot rockets and guns. And this went on for several weeks right, because we all did two or three sorties each. Um, and the range we used, uh, the bombing range, was just only about five miles north of the base. So it was very handy, it was quite local. So you can spend a fair bit of time doing your thing. We started off with dive bombing, <coughs> which involved a 45 degree dive from 10,000 feet, dropping the, or pickling the, the bomb at 4,000 feet and then pulling out by two. Because theoretically, the safe blast radius for a 500 pound bomb was about 2,000 feet. Yeah. Um, so you know, in peacetime, they wanted you to survive. In wartime, I don't know, you'd probably come 1,000 feet lower and take the risks. Yeah. But the thing was, you couldn't see where the bomb fell, and we were only using little practice bombs, they were little 12 and a half pound flashbangs, that's yep. all they were, yep. and made a little puff. And on the range below, there were two what they called quadrant huts, there were two little huts down there with guys in them, and they had these little sort of lateral theodolite things, and they could take alignment on the flash and, and the puff of, of, of smoke, and then quickly talk, plot it. On a, on, a, on a chart, so they radio you back and say your bomb was six o'clock at 300 feet, which okay. is pretty miserable actually. Yeah, yeah. Or you know, direct hit, you, you wish. <laughs> <laughs> or 10 o'clock, 50 feet or something like that. Because yeah. yeah, dive bombing um, was initially quite alarming. We'd done it a little bit in the Vampire, but the Sabre was far more dramatic because you just dove from a higher altitude and 45 degree dive feels pretty damn steep. Yeah. So for the first couple of sorties, you're really just getting into the pattern and getting the airplane control, you know, the power settings and the speed brakes and all, and then you started to fine tune your sight picture. So most of us got bombs within 50 or 60 feet of the target, and we, we rationalised that by saying, well, if that was a 500 pound bomb, 50 feet's close enough. <laughs> 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 
but it wasn't apart from the actual flying it wasn't that dramatic because you couldn't see anything go bang but then we got to rocketry and that was far more fun yeah. because the rockets we used three inch rockets same rockets as on the, on we had on the, the vampire and you could see them go whooshing out in front and actually hitting the target just as you're pulling it pulling away and so you, you got this extra extra buzz of seeing the destruction that you were causing on yeah. this, this pile of wood target and also they, they give you a plot as well so the accuracy with rockets was far better and then finally uh, the air-to-ground gunnery and this was against a, um, a large or probably a target about as big as a wall of a house yes. about 30 feet square something like that with a big black dot in the middle yeah. and each of our we only fired uh, training rounds they didn't explode because this was a cannon so technically they explode some bullets but these are just blanks right. and they were tipped with a very tacky paint okay yep. so it would be four aircraft in in the pattern there was always four aircraft in all the bombing and rocketry patterns flying around around and the circuit pattern that we were flying was about the same size as you see a Cessna flying at the local airport except we're doing it about 10 times faster Right. And we're going between 10,000 feet and dot feet while doing it. So you go around once every minute or so. Um, anyway, with the, with, with the gunnery pass, you would then all fire on the same target. And, and uh, at the end of that, the guys would rush out there with their little jeep, drag down the target and count the number of holes and by which colour. So right. they'd radio back to the, to the squadron about half an hour later. Blue got five green got seven yeah. uh, and this is out of 120 rounds yeah. fired <laughs> and, and the ace of the day got 12 or something like that i uh, i had a look at my scores just the other day i had a look at my logbook just to refresh me on some of this I, I did three gunnery passes uh three gunnery sorties and the first one i got 18 percent the second one 10 and the, and the third one five so i was getting worse rather than better <laughs> i was obviously starting to think too much I should have quit while I was ahead because eighteen percent is not bad, because you know uh, you're firing at about a, a thousand foot slant range, and these two guns would rip off because they were big guns and they really shook the whole airplane. Your gun sight just went a blur once you fired. The gun sight would just be a blur in front of you, oh, right. so you couldn't actually track anything while you're firing. You just, and of course, the, the airplane held one hundred and twenty rounds of ammunition, so it was just a blip on the trigger. Yeah. So we did eight passes and usually expended all the ammunition within eight passes, and. Uh, got your scores so good fun so again again we just checked out the whole course was just to get you into this so you knew how to fly the pattern you knew the procedures the safety precautions and how to point the thing generally in the direction of the target and pull the trigger and not kill anybody yeah right that's all the conversion course was about because you then had to do a lot of sort of on the job training once you got into the squadrons then we got to the air to air phase and that was particularly interesting and that developed into three different things too one of them was just chasing each other around the sky with gun cameras okay learning how to use the gun sight to track because the gun sight in the saber was um easy in one sense once you understood how it worked it was a twin gyro platform which had an automatic lead pursuit unlike the good old world war ii days where you had a, a ring and bead sight and you had to sort of eyeball how far ahead of the target to point this would automatically compute that with the rate of turn and this gyro would cause the whole sight on your windscreen to lag back because it was an optically projected sight. But one of the the key ingredients of of this, knowing how far this thing should lag behind in order to give you automatic lead was how far the target was away. In the Vampire they had a thing called stadiometric ranging which was a great word for do it yourself. (laughs) You actually had to twist the throttle 
to change the size of the gun sight reticle to make it the same size as the wingspan of the airplane, and yeah. that would then feed into the the gyro, the uh, uh, the, the range, etc., etc. Well, the saber did that automatically. It had a little radar. Oh, right. If you look at the picture of a saber, it's got the little puppy dog nose at the front. A tiny little nose on the front there, and inside that little fiberglass black nose was a four-inch diameter radar disc pointing straight ahead. It didn't scan, didn't do anything like that. There was no radar display in the cockpit. All it was was a range radar, okay. right, which um, gave you range to the target. Now, the early F-86s that the Yanks had um, was a fairly low-powered one. It was got designed just for gunnery. When we uh, hung the sidewinders uh, on, on the side, which gave it a range out to several miles, they had to put a, shall we say, a more powerful radar thing in it. I'm not quite sure whether they just tweaked the one up and put a different unit. Right. But this little four-inch disc could actually give you a range out to a couple of miles, okay. which is quite amazing for a four-inch disc yeah. done with valves. Um, so it improved the fire control system of the airplane to suit the missiles. Anyway, for, um, for, for this sort of thing, so you just practice using the sight, getting the lead of the airplane and how to anticipate what it was doing and all. With cinefilm, you bring it back and assess it. And there'd be a picture of a saber turning in front of you with your sight wandering all around the, the sky except on him yeah. for some time until you settled down. And this was necessary because the very next phase then was air to air gunnery, right? okay. where we actually had to fire against another similar target to the air to ground one, but it was a bit longer and narrower. It was about 30 feet long and about 5 feet deep, roughly the same area as the side of the fuselage of another saber or a, a fighter. Yeah. And this was an interesting thing because it had to be towed by another saber. Oh, right. right. So usually it was five aircraft involved in these sorties. Uh, the tow ship saber, had, they, they just installed this little hook inside the speed brake well. And you'd taxi out as a tow, because we all got to be a tug pilot at least once, and we got to fire on this thing at least three or four times as well. Yep. So the tug pilot would taxi out first, and I had this banner laid out on the side of the runway, and it was just like an advertising banner in terms of its general shape and arrangement, yep. with a metal yep. bar and a weight, and a, and a radar reflector for this radar gun sight to to do its thing on. And then about a thousand feet of cable, steel right. cable, yeah. with a little hook. So the tug aircraft would taxi out, they would then hook this thing inside the speed brakes, the pilot would close the brakes to lock it, and the deal was then you do not touch the speed brake switch from that point on. If right. you forgot and popped your speed brakes out, you would dump the entire target. Right. And that was the target where everyone got direct hits, so you can bet on <laughs> <laughs> Some guys actually took some masking tape out and having closed the speed brake because the switch was on the top of the throttle, they put some tape over it to, <laughs> so they wouldn't touch it again. <laughs> and then the, the, the tug ship would take off and he had to stagger up to, into the sky, but only about 180 knots was the limiting speed on this, this thing. So it was a very inefficient climb. The other four jets would take off a moment or so later. And the first thing we did was to go and formate on the target okay. right, and get a radar range from the tow ship because the tow pilot was also having been hooked up, the guys who, who set it up on the ground would write on a small chalkboard the cable length, 1,090 feet or 1,010 feet. Right? Okay. So he would tell us what the, the cable length was. So the aim was to pull up alongside the radar reflector on the, uh, on the target, get a radar lock on on the tow ship, and have a look at your little range indicator, the electric thing, to see if it agreed. Yeah. They never did, because... The, the little indicator was, I think, the, the weak link in the, in the whole business. Oh, right. It just wasn't that good. Right. They were always within 100 feet or so. So theoretically, you were supposed to allow for this. You're supposed to say, right, my radar thinks it's 100 feet further out than it is, therefore I've got to allow a little less lead than the site says. 
it kind of never happened. Yeah. You got your sight near the target and you gave a squirt and so <laughs> <laughs> But as it turns out, most of the radars were actually more accurate than the display we were getting. Because if you kind of ignored this, as long as it was about a thousand feet, you hit the target. Oh, okay. okay. And so the actual scores you got on this air-to-air -air target weren't too bad. The towpath aircraft would then go up to about 20,000 feet, out over the ocean, about five miles, ten miles out to sea, and then set up a north-south tow line at about 20,000 feet at about 180 knots. Now we had four aircraft we sent out to fly. We flew this sort of very dynamic pattern, yeah. sort of creeping line ahead pattern, whereas we'd pull away from the, the, um, the tow ship and up about five to 7,000 feet above him and about two miles wide, back to about 200 knots, and then you'd roll in and dive down uh, accelerate to about 350 knots, so you have to double the speed of the tow ship, and uh, you know, lock onto the, the, the target and shoot at it at the appropriate range, about a thousand foot range, yeah. and hopefully hit it. <coughs> and again, we had the same little coloured tipped uh, bullets. Yeah, yeah. And this is quite dynamic, just learning to fly this pattern without either shooting at each other. <laughs> <laughs> Because if you got ahead or behind in the pattern, you know, yeah. you, you had to be sure. The, the tow ship pilot's other job was he was the safety officer. He had to sort of sit almost backwards in the cockpit to make sure he didn't have two aircraft in the attacking dive at the same time. Oh, like right. someone, someone, someone had miscued and was looking at the wrong guy and there's two of them there because one was going to be shooting quite close to the other one. Yeah. And also make sure you didn't attack at too low an angle to the target so you're going to shoot him. Yeah. So he was always on the radio saying, hey, you know, back off or do this and all. And of course, that was usually one of the instructors in the early days because he could sort of supervise us guys. Yeah. When we got to the big four ship op operations in the gunnery on the ground and also in the air, there was at least one of our instructors there. When I say instructor, I should clarify, they weren't flying instructors in the sense that you see at an aero club. They didn't teach us to fly the aeroplane. We taught ourselves that. These guys are called fighter combat instructors. Right. These guys had already done one or two tours on fighters and were regarded as the, the, the better guys, if you like, and they came back and did a... Uh, fighter combat instructors course, sort of the Top Gun course if you like, and yep. they qualified them to go back and, and show us, probably the best way to put it, yep. show us how to use the aeroplane as a weapon. They could not be in our cockpit, they didn't know whether we flew with our right hand on the stick and lower left hand on the stick or whether we flew it with our knees, it didn't matter as long as we made it go in the direction and do the job, yep. Yep. they really didn't care. Uh, so they weren't flying instructors. So anyway, we, we did this um, shooting on this thing, four or five uh, sessions of that, and um, if you got five or six hits in those early days out of your 120 bullets, you felt pretty proud of yourself. <laughs> and of course, we came home and then the tug would slowly drag this thing back home again. He'd arrive back home about 15 minutes later, fly down the runway, pop his speed brakes out, drop it on the ground, and again, they'd count it all. So it was a fairly lengthy process. Yeah. And in fact, each, each sort of sorting, by the time you briefed it, set it up, did it, and then debriefed, because there's a lot of other things to debrief, like you were out of position and you nearly shot me down, you bastard, and all yeah, that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then finally got the score. It was half a day, right? Okay. So we probably uh, flew twice a day maximum doing this sort of training, but you know, it was pretty full on on the ground just to learn from everything that you'd done. Yeah. Finally, the biggie, if I can call it the biggie, because probably the biggie was the air to air gunnery, because it required the most skill, I think. But then we got to the, the missile stage. Oh, right. Actually, that wasn't the, the biggie, of course. The very last one, but I'll come to that in a minute. Yeah. The next thing was how to fire a sidewinder missile. Yeah. And this was fun, because they let us actually fire a missile. But they wouldn't let us fire a brand spanking new one. Oh, no. no the bean <laughs> counters wouldn't have that. <clears throat> the sidewinder missile had a use-by date, like most things, yes, of yeah. about five or six years before they, the rocket motors were considered 
or the gyros or whatever, just not up to scratch. So we would always get the slightly time expired ones okay. or about to be time expired, you know. So the chances of them actually working as advertised were problematic. <laughs> <laughs> of course, then you have to have a target to fire them at. And uh, also everyone else wanted to come along and watch too. We each got a shot, but we all go up and watch the other guy taking a shot as well. Yeah. So this was about a week's worth of, of mucking around and getting all the airplanes organized to do this. The way we did it, now the, the sidewinder missile is a big rocket, much bigger than the air ground rocket. So it was a five inch diameter and it was about two meters long. Right. And it hung under the, under the wing. Now we had two sidewinder rails because the airplane in operations could carry two missiles. <coughs> and automatically, when you press the button to fire the missile, the left-hand missile would go first, and then this little change automatic would change over. And one second later, if you pressed it again, the right missile would go. So you couldn't fire two missiles together. Right. There was always one at a time, yeah. and it was always left then right. <coughs> Pardon me. So what they did is they put on the left-hand rail a target rocket. Okay. Yeah. Which was another five-inch unguided rocket, not as powerful as a sidewinder because the sidewinder actually had to catch it. That was the plan. <coughs> But also to make a decent infrared source, they clustered around the tail of it flares. There was about six flares yeah. clustered around the tail and held there with a, one of the great hose clamps. It all was, it was fairly primitive, yeah. all screwed down. So when the rocket fired, it would light the flares so there'd be this quite white light whistling off in the distance. And of course the, the, the deal was that the, the shooter would ease the nose up just a little bit, 10 or 15 degrees in the air, launch the target rocket, and it would go whooshing out ahead of the airplane. Count to about four, yep. by then the changeover had happened. He'd, be, he'd be now be tracking it with his gun sight. He would get the tone, because you actually hear in your in your earphones, this growling sound from the missile when it was seeing an infrared source. Yeah, so you knew that it was locked on, yep. you'd see. And also you got a little um, a red, green light came on showing that your radar had locked onto it too. Well, it didn't necessarily happen with these tiny ones, but it didn't matter. Yep. We knew it was in range if you count to about four, and then launch. And the sidewinder would then head off and hopefully catch the target rocket and, and blow it up. <coughs> now those early model sidewinders, and the reason I named sidewinder was, was, uh, was because of the way they flew. They had this gyroscopic sensing device inside them which was constantly correcting for its track but it would over, overshoot slightly so yeah. it would S-turn. So it would weave towards the target oh, just really? like a sidewinder snake right, weaving yeah. along. That's where it got the name from. Yeah. So this thing would actually snake out in front of you and then finally find the target and go bang. That was the plan and it worked most of the time. We also had three other aircraft clustered around just watching this happen. So we had a formation of four and one of the aircraft actually sat in behind the, the, the shooter with his gun camera running just to film the whole thing. Oh, he right, just, yeah. He's up on, no bullets of course, yeah. he's pulling the trigger and will run the gun camera. Well, we just got a turn at doing that. And when I got my turn to do it, two things happened which were quite interesting. Um, I was sitting in behind the, the, the shooter and uh, he called that he was about to start shooting and he eased the nose up, so I pulled down the trigger and so I'm filming him. Yeah. And so I'm looking straight up his tailpipe because I'm only about two or three aircraft lengths behind him. Yeah. And so he launches the, the target rocket and all the flares came off Ooh. straight back at me. I had one actually bounce off the nose. I thought they were going to go down the intake. So I sort of let go of the trigger and pushed away. Uh, because the, the pilot having said, well, he could still see the tail of the, of, the, of the target rocket, even if it wasn't that bright. Yeah. So at the appropriate three or four seconds, he launched the missile. Hmm? But the missile couldn't see it. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
Maybe because it was slightly time expired, I don't know. Because we could all see this little dot, but the missile said, no, I can't see anything out there. <laughs> so it went shooting out a couple of miles and then did a right angle climbing turn. <laughs> and we're all watching this thing going, uh oh. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> and almost without a word being said, everyone had closed the throttle to cool down the back end yeah, of the yeah. airplane. And the whole formation had turned and was pointing at this missile. So that the cold end was pointing at it and the hot end was pointing away from it. Yeah. And, and no one said anything. We all just thought exactly the same thing. You know, it's coming back. But it didn't come back. It, it, it did a, a 90 degree turn and flew away and then self destructed. Bang. Right. And it was all over. And that all happened. That was, that was, but unfortunately, I didn't get the gun camera film of that because I, I was ducking the flares. Yeah. When I got back on the ground, the black paint on the nose of my airplane had a singe mark where one of them actually bounced, bounced off the nose. Wow. So that was my first battle damage. <laughs> I'd been almost shot down by a flare. Yeah. Oh, man. And then the final part, uh, this was probably the real biggie, we got into air combat training. And this all oh, went on for three or four weeks, okay. right? Where we'd learn all these set piece maneuvers um, and how to get in and out of trouble and all the rest of it. A lot of these set piece maneuvers were pretty pretty basic things because uh, it's hard to teach someone air combat except from a purely theoretical point of view because you have to have this spatial awareness because you're really maneuvering a three-dimensional egg if you like yeah where you use gravity to assist you turning at the top and not at the bottom etc etc you have to of course understand the parameters that your aircraft maneuvered best in uh, for instance if you went beyond Mach 0.9 going downhill, the pitch rate of the airplane decayed significantly because you start to get compressibility effects and all. So you tried to keep it below Mach 0.9, which was hard to do because the little sucker wanted to go. And uh, and then try and basically outmaneuver the other guy. So what they only, apart from doing this for free flow stuff, they taught us a few almost last ditch maneuvers. If he's about to shoot you, try this and good luck sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. And of course, once we did, we, and we set these up in training, but moving on through the years, we never actually used these large ditch maneuvers against each other because you always knew what the other guy was going to do. Yeah. It wasn't until some, quite some time later when I got into dissimilar air combat tactics with airplanes up in Southeast Asia, where I actually used them a couple of times, but the other guy had never seen them before and they worked. <laughs> <laughs> so we flopped around the sky doing all this sort of stuff. And by now, of course, we're feeling completely at home in the airplane and we really were. And, and being very conscious of the fact that the machinery just took care of itself. And this is what I said earlier on, the airplane has to be very simple to fly so you can concentrate on what you're doing. Because I can recall on some of these early air combat sorties where I didn't look inside the cockpit at all, especially as I was on the losing end and someone was behind me, I'm sideways in the seat looking out the back, yeah. huh? uh, trying to outmaneuver him. So you'd be hauling this airplane around for half an hour and you wouldn't be looking inside at oil pressures or fuel pressures or anything like that. Yeah. You would just occasionally check the fuel gauge because you tended to run out of gas fairly easily. Yeah. Um, the airplane just took care of itself so that you could go on with the job of, of being a fighter pilot and that was why I really loved that airplane. Okay. And of course on that subject we had to of course monitor the fuel very quickly or very closely because the airplane only had a 50 minute safe endurance. Oh, is that right? No, that's right. Only 50 minutes, yeah. And you'd cram a lot in 50 minutes. When you're zooming around at 400 knots, it doesn't, you can get a lot in. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, what is the mandatory fuel reserve for a light airplane these days? 45 minutes. I mean, basically, we were declaring a, a, a pan before we, on taxi. <coughs> the airplane had, uh, that was clean without any tanks on, and all we did was a, with a completely clean airplane. 
it had one hour of one hour endurance total, right? So the plan was to get back onto the runway with 10 minutes of fuel. That was it, that was standard, 10 minutes. And um, under training circumstances, that was reasonably easy to do. Um, we did an instrument flying phase somewhere in the middle of all this, I can't remember where, I think it was done on opportunity simply because how do you do instrument flying in a single cockpit airplane? You don't actually put a hood over you. Right, because there's no one to, to keep a look at. Yeah. So the best way to practice instrument flying is to pick a cloudy day and go fly around in the clouds. Right. Well, we did this a couple of times, and uh, by the time you shoot your approach, and, uh, et cetera, and then go around and do it again, or if you got caught because there's a half a dozen of you doing the same thing, so you've got to wait your turn, sometimes the fuel gauge got a little bit lower than that. Yeah. Right? But normally you'd be back on the ground after about 50 minutes. So you know, you're doing a 50-minute sortie, and if you did two a day, plus all the briefing, it was a pretty full day. So it took quite a long time to amass a lot of flying hours. Um, the average fighter pilot would do about 250 hours per year. Okay. And that would be about 300 sorties in a 12-month period, which yep. is pretty average. Sometimes you do a little bit more, a little bit less. Um, so it's the instrument flying was just squeezed in. Um, and of course, many cases, of course, the actual instrument flying you did in operations I mean, you were logging instrument time. You, you, you logged your instrument time purely because at the end of each year, you had to do an instrument rating test with another aircraft flying on your wing. And if you didn't kill him, you passed. That was sort of the basic philosophy. Yeah. So every chance you got for flying in cloud, you would log it. So if you got airborne and you were climbing to 40,000 feet and you entered cloud at 10,000 feet and you popped out at 20 on top, yeah. you would log that as one minute instrument flying. <laughs> <laughs> My logbook is full of, full of yeah, two minutes, five minutes of sessions just to get some time because all you do is just pop up through the stuff because at 40,000 feet you're mostly above the weather yeah. and so quite often we'd be doing our air combat our air combat training um, above the cloud not being absolutely certain of where we were we knew we were somewhere out to the east of Williamtown Air Base yeah. but how far we weren't sure we could have been halfway to New Zealand we just didn't realize it <laughs> because there was no DME there was nothing else at all the airplane had exactly the same uh, ADF unit as the Vampire had, which is an old steam age uh, radio compass where you had to pit the big frequency oscillator and hand crank it and you, <laughs> <laughs> you get the tone. And it had this little neat trick of doing what's called a 10 degree bearing change. You would set the needle, manual, go to manual loop, set the needle on the wingtip and then turn and point it at the, at the station. So you get a null and then you fly straight ahead until you got a, uh, the tone again and then you'd wind it 10 degrees back from that when you got the tone again and you would time it. it would take say 15 or 20 seconds to get a 10 degree bearing change. Yeah. You multiplied that by your Mach number and that was the distance from the airfield. And so quite often we'd have these air combat engagements to a conclusion and then as we're climbing back up the lead aircraft we'd do a 10 degree bearing change and say ah oh, we're 80 miles from home folks what is, what's the fuel state? And they come back with oh, 1,500 pounds, 1,300 pounds. Okay, time for one more, away you go. Yeah. And then that one would get a little bit longer, uh, more protracted. So by the time you finish that, the next fuel state, uh, I'm on 600 pounds. Uh-huh, and we're still 30 miles out. <laughs> <laughs> so quite often you would get back with a little less than, uh, than the standard level of fuel. But no one seemed to care about it. It was all, yeah, okay, that's the way it was. We never lost an airplane, it never ran out of gas. Uh, a couple of times I taxied in with the fuel gauge bouncing on empty, but you know, you think, oh well, ho-hum. You're all just a bit gung-ho about it in those yeah, days. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyway, at the end of this course, uh, that finally finished in December and we all graduated. We didn't lose anyone on the course at all. We all graduated as Category C fighter pilots. Okay. 
and as a Category C fighter pilot, that means you are capable of joining a fighter squadron and starting to learn your trade. I suppose the categories are very similar to the New Zealand um, instructor categories, A, B, C. C was the junior guy, B was the working fighter pilot who had enough experience to be sent off to do whatever, and A was the hotshot. Right. And he was the, the squadron ace, and there weren't very many A categories around as a result of that. <clears throat> so that ended um, my 19th year, and we all graduated, and it was Christmas time, so I took the... Uh, Christmas break and went to see my uh, my folks and I flew a vampire down to Laverton Air Base. I got in a vampire again and oh, oh what a step back in history that was. <laughs> and it was about that time that I really re realised how much I hated the vampire <laughs> because there was just no comparison. Yeah. The creature comfort, I mean the, the Sabre cockpit was fairly large and roomy, uh, but the vampire was, was uncomfortable, but we'd all finally graduated. And so it was time to move on to number 76 Fighter Squadron, which is where I was posted. Two of us were posted there, two to number 75 Squadron, and the Wing Commander went on to do, uh, up to Butterworth, I think, and I can't remember where the fifth, the fifth guy went. So long ago. Yeah. Um, the only thing I suppose I should mention at this stage um, was this, it might sound a bit boring, but the, the survival side of, of this aeroplane. Yeah. Uh, and the reason I mention that is because I just noticed the other day I was looking at uh, Sabres on the internet and 983, which I've flown, is the Sabre at the Tamora Museum. It's the only CAC Avon Sabre still flying in the world. Right, right. And I'm looking closely at it and something just didn't look right and suddenly I realised on one particular picture that they have installed in it a Martin Baker ejection seat. Okay. A later model ejection seat than the one that we had and they've had to change the the canopy rails in such a way that the, the hoop of the canopy, which is a bow around the front, uh, doesn't hit it. Right. And that was not standard. Probably smart, because the original seat wasn't you know, the greatest in the world. It was better than the Vampire, but only by a small margin. Yeah. Because the ejection seat in the, in the, the North American airplane was actually made by North American Aviation. And it was just a seat. Yeah. It just fired you out of the cockpit and it had no other niceties at all. All the other niceties which you need uh, were within your own parachute pack. Okay. Because to fly this aeroplane, just to get suited up took you 10 minutes because you wore the standard Nomex flying suit. In fact, in those days we had cotton flying suits which had been saturated in some anti-fireproof stuff which immediately vanished when, as soon as you started getting a bit of a sweat. Yeah. You had your G-suit which you put on over the top of that, which was like a pair of cowboy chaps which inflated around your legs and around your abdomen yeah. and that squeezed the uh, your, your body as you pull G in a turn, which enabled you to sustain high G forces, yeah. and when you sustain them, and that's a key thing because you hear a lot of aerobatic pilots, including myself these days, pulling up to six Gs and minus three Gs regularly, but it's only for a couple of seconds. Yeah. Whereas in a jet doing a high speed, you can pull six G and hold it. Right. Right. For a minute, you know, as you do this downward spiral on someone's tail. And holding it for a minute is a f whole lot different ball game to just having it imposed upon you for a couple of seconds. Yes, yeah. So this G-suit, and it all it was, a very simple thing. It was compressed air. Of course, in a jet engine, there's no shortage of compressed air. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and this would come off the compressor before it even got lit up in the burners down the back. Yeah. And it was just a, a, a valve operator with a lead weight and a spring. And as you pulled G, this lead weight would just open the valve and squeeze, pump air in. And we got an air pressure inside the G-suit of about 
one pound per square inch for every G. Okay. So if you're pulling a six G turn, then you had six PSI overpressure in the suit. Doesn't sound much, but that's huge. I mean, we're sitting here right now under 14 PSI. Yeah. So it was you know, almost double, sorry, almost 50% uh, more pressure um, than we're sitting here right now. But yeah. you know, it, it enabled you to sustain the turn without losing consciousness. So you put the G-suit on, then you had the May West, which was the uh, the life preserver. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of your readers will probably know where the term May West came from. It's an old World War II term. Yeah. It was a life preserver with a big inflatable bladder which went around your neck, and when it was inflated, these two really large protuberances stuck out in front of you, looking not unlike the old movie star May West in full bloom. Exactly. That's where it got its nickname. So you put that on, and it had its own survival beacons in the pockets there. It was exactly the same thing as we carried in the vampire. But then you had the parachute, which went on about that and you had your own personal parachute which you had to strap on before you got in the cockpit yeah. now inside the parachute pack was a barostatic device an oxygen bottle um, so that if you had to bail out at say 35,000 feet um, you would then free fall down to the lower altitudes and this little oxygen bottle would just feed a continuous flow of oxygen by an auxiliary tube into your oxygen mask so you didn't of oxygen deprivation yeah. but also I had this barostatic device which prevented the parachute from opening until you hit about 14,000 feet because if you opened the parachute at 30,000 feet it's going to be an awful cold ride down because we're talking about minus 40 degrees centigrade temperatures yeah. there yeah. and basically you're still in a cotton flying suit <clears throat> so the plan was if you ejected the seat would fire you out of the aeroplane and through the canopy uh, earlier models tried to jettison the canopy and that didn't work, they donged a couple of guys on the head so the final solution to that was actually just go through the canopy. You had a special little canopy braking bolt, a spring-loaded thing which as you pulled the handle fired this bolt through the canopy which weakened it and then the main structure of the seat just went straight through. Right. And bearing in mind that we're semi-pressurised, we had about a five pound per square inch difference between inside outside pressure. So once the canopy was ruptured it would just shatter and fly out. Yeah. And trials proved that by the time the seat got there there was not much canopy left. Okay. So we fire straight through the canopy and then it, within about a second the seat would then kick you out with the strap which was underneath you would fire you out of the seat and uh, you're in free fall with your parachute pack and the dinghy pack which was basically part of the seat which you clipped it on when you sat down so it went with you too and you free fell with all of this stuff hanging on to you until about 14,000 feet where the barostatic device would automatically open the parachute and then from there on you would float on down. Yeah. If you're heading towards trees you would keep the dinghy pack firmly clipped to your bum yeah. because <laughs> it protected you from the odd branch going where it shouldn't go. <laughs> if you were coming into water you would then drop the dinghy pack and as it fell it would uh, pull this little lanyard which you'd also clip to yourself and would inflate a dinghy which then dangled 15 feet below you so when you hit the water there was a dinghy to crawl into. Yeah. So it was all very well thought out. The seat gave us a potential um, ejection down to 250 feet altitude and 140 knots minimum airspeed. Right? Okay. Now nowadays with these modern zero-zero seats as they're called, you can literally eject in the parking area and the rocket seat will take you up high enough and fast enough to deploy the parachute and bring you down. Yes. Back in those days you couldn't do that at all. So the seat was good uh, in, in its basic form as it came from North American. To it had to be at least 140 knots and 250 feet in the air for all this mechanism to work and have the parachute open before you hit the ground. <clears throat> it was considered that this wasn't good enough. And this bit, I'm mentioning this bit particularly because this is a bit of good old Aussie ingenuity kept in here. Yeah. For the sake of a $2, or probably in those days, a, a, a 
20 cents uh, dog lead clip we improve the ejection seat capability no end okay you know the little you the little hook clip that you have on the end of the lead for your dog you hook yeah. on your dog collar with a little yeah. spring-loaded plunger right exactly yeah. we have one of those and it was tied to a tiny little strap which connected to the harness after you strapped in because the harness stayed with the seat and normally when you left the seat this long reeled cable would, uh, would would reel out and activate the barristat about a meter of cable so as you fell away from the seat this cable would reel out through this little spool and then activate the barristat and down you went yep. and then it went bzz, click whir, pop for about one and a half seconds they would pop out the drag sheet so this all took time one and a half seconds yep. and they figured if they could bypass that at low level um, it would solve the problem. Now we all always had the manual D-ring as the last resort. You could reach around your body and grab this D-ring and pull it, just yes. like any old parachute's got. Yeah. So this little clip hooked onto the D-ring and went straight to the harness of the seat. So the instant you left the seat, it would pull the D-ring oh and bypass the one meter of reel out and the one and a half seconds delay. So the, the mere action of leaving the seat automatically pulled the D-ring and activated the parachute. Right. And this brought the minimum safe, or minimum the absolute minimum, I should say, minimum safe was about 2,000. Below 2,000 was always a risk, but yep. the absolute minimum from 250 feet down to 100 feet. Oh, okay. Yeah, which was quite significant. Yeah. All for this little bulldog clip. Right? Now, of course, you had to make sure that the bulldog clip was on the D-ring at low level, but not on the D-ring at altitude, because if you forgot and left it on when you did eject at 35,000 feet, it would open the parachute automatically. It would bypass the whole thing. Yeah. Thereby, causing you to become a popsicle yes. as you floated on down. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And there was a tiny little wire ring also uh, on our harness, which this thing would dangle on just to get it out of the way. So invariably, or always, not invariably, always when a formation of, of, of fighters was climbing uh, or descending, as it passed 10,000 feet, the leader would say, hooks off. And the formation would jiggle as everyone felt down, undid their little dog clip and hooked it onto the wire loop took it off the D-ring yeah. and on the way downhill hooks on and that was a standard call so below 10,000 feet you had the hooks on and above 10,000 feet you had the hook off and this made the seat a whole lot safer at very low altitude and it was all done with a 20 cent puppy dog clip <laughs> <laughs> which was cool. amazing yeah it was yeah uh, and of course they're all a bit Heath Robinson there's all these little things the modern uh, modern seat of course you stay with the seat when you eject and you stay with it in a and it keeps you out farming when you're at the appropriate altitude and they've all got micro systems and gyros and you can almost fly the seat home, I think. Right, right. But uh, anyway, that, that was the that was the, the safety equipment uh, side of things. And again, you, once you got used to this, you just did it automatically because you could actually throw this stuff on. The only, the, only, the only dangerous part about it, and I did this once later in life, but it popped into my head now. The deal was when you went out to the airplane, you would take the parachute off your shoulder because you're wearing it you know, over your shoulders, not clipped on, yeah. and you sling it up and you put it up on the wing. Yeah. Okay. Then you do the standard walk around of the airplane, and then you'd vault up on the wing because when you're standing, the wing was at about waist height, maybe a fraction higher. Yeah. So you know, part of the reason for being fit was you have to vault up onto the wing, and then standing on the wing, you'd hook on the parachute, and then you'd swing your leg over on the kick step. Yeah. So, but, and then you from the kick step you'd climb up into the cockpit. One day, for some strange reason, I have no idea why, I walked out. I did not take the parachute off my shoulders. I did the complete pre-flight with the parachute still on my shoulders, right? Yeah. Which means I weighed about 20 pounds more than I should. Yeah. So when I came to vault onto the wing, I missed. And the wing caught me in a place that cricketers wear a special protection. <laughs> 
I fell back onto the ground. Now the parachute protected me because when I fell back on the tarmac, at least I had a soft landing. I couldn't fly that day. <laughs> I had to take myself out of the sortie because it really, really hurt. Yeah. <laughs> so there, there are certain risks like that. Also, if the wing was wet when you vaulted up, there was nothing for, to go sliding straight off the back and down the flaps and come around and try that again. Yeah. So usually the ground crew, and there was usually three or four ground crew around because we had these big Deutsch gener uh, diesel generators to get the thing going and all, and there was armourers there. So they, they got used to the sort of conditions and would strategically position themselves around the aeroplane to catch pilots who slid off the wing or something like that. Uh, but there was no one, no, none of them actually told me that I was wearing my parachute and they knew what was coming. Uh, I, in retrospect, I could see a few smirks on their face. They thought, let's wait and see what happens here. <laughs> Bastards. <laughs> anyway, with all of that, I graduated and uh, I went home, had my 20th birthday on the end of January and then joined number 76 fighter squadron on the 1st of February. So I didn't quite make it to be a, a teenage squadron member, but yeah. I still declare I was a teenage fighter pilot. Yeah, definitely. And so then 76 squadron uh, was at Williamtown. And then I spent the next 20 months there, and that obviously should be the subject of the next talk, I think. I think so, yeah. Well, that's, that's amazing. That's, that was um, really fascinating, actually, yeah, just to go through that whole training phase. And um, as you say, we'll come back to the squadron phase in the, in the next episode. Several squadron phases. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks, Dave. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.